Hey, welcome to the first ever real episode of Terminal. The first real episode of the show. Yeah, not the, hey, we're going to do something maybe. Yeah, we should put something out there, blah, blah, blah. No, this this we actually have a real person that we're talking to. Yep, yep. Uh, we had uh, Anthony Sophia come in. He's a senior technical staff member at IBM. Yeah, and he talked about uh, SMF and its role in cognitive machine learning for doing data center management, or at least system management. I'm, I'm really glad that he came in and talked about it the way he did, because SMF is one of those things, you, if you work on the platform, you hear people talk about it all the time, you say, oh yeah, need SMF, SMF that, and just, usually it's in the middle of a crisis when it's like not working, or somebody's looking through it, it's not really the time to say, hey, could you spend 40 minutes and tell me what this thing is all about? So it's it's you know, I, I think that's what this podcast is probably going to be pretty good for to, to get a good explanation in that kind of format. And you can tell, I mean, he's such a good uh, speaker. Mm-hmm. It's like he knew the questions before they came out. It, it almost is. This is uh, I'm going to be honest. This is the interview so nice we did it twice. Uh, I kind of I had a little file system problem on my on my laptop here and. Uh, let me tell you how much fun it is to tell somebody, hey, that was a great episode, uh, great recording. Um, Want to come back and do the same thing again? Yeah, it was great. He only rolled his eyes three or four times. It was well worth it. Before we put this out there, I should I should just call him and say, man, you wouldn't believe it, but guess what happened to the second recording? <laughs> yeah, we'll do that to him next. Yeah. But stay tuned. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. It's time for the show that records straight to tape. Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. Welcome back to Terminal Talk. Our guest is Anthony Sophia, Senior Technical Staff Member at IBM. Thank, glad to be here, guys. I, you, you say that now. We haven't gotten to the worst part yet. <laughs> so, 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 Anthony, uh, what, what, what would you say you, you do here? What is it that you do do? Yes. Well, it's a very, uh, very deep and thought-provoking question. Thank you. Um, I've been, you know, at IBM for 13 years full time. Uh, in that time, I've done a lot of different work in different areas of the mainframe. And, you know, at this point in my career, you know, I don't write quite as much code as I used to. I'm definitely doing more design, um, more you know, acquiring problems from, you know, things we can do better from the field and making sure that we put those improvements back into the mainframe. If I'm correct here, I, I think you started out with Linux as part of your, your internship. Yes. So uh, back when... You know, Jeff and I have known each other quite some number of years. Um, Back when Linux was a thing and all you had to do was say, it runs Linux. And it's like, oh, yes, that's important to us. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, now nobody really cares. Yeah. Now everything runs Linux. Um, but, but back in the uh, the late 90s, early 2000s, um, when Jeff and I were in college together, um, yeah, my whole background was, was based on Linux. Um, Linux on Intel, Linux on, at the time, S390, which became Linux on Z. Uh, doing administrative work, programming, stuff like that in the Linux environment. So I had a very deep set of Linux skills before moving into ZOS. Yeah, Frank and I were just kind of talking about this over lunch that, you know, when um, for a lot of people who have, uh, we'll say many years on the platform, we remember Linux as when it was the new thing. Um, and for the new hires coming in right now, Linux is just another operating system that has literally been around for as long as they've been alive. So it's it's really not the new thing for them. I, I kind of wonder what's going to be the new platform for them. Uh, and is there an opportunity for Z to be that new platform if we reintroduce it to them? 
I mean, that's a great point, and and one I hadn't actually thought about before is how you know old Linux is at this point. It's right. it's been around for what thirty years, something probably, like that. Yeah, probably about thirty years. But I am I'm kind of counting from the point when you could actually like download an ISO and put it on. Yeah, you know, when it was more consumable. So yeah. like the late '90s when people really started displacing Unix platforms with Linux. Yeah. And I mean, I think you're right. At this point, people have managed to make that migration from Windows to Linux. And, you know, ZOS, it's just another operating system, just another environment with a set of APIs and documentation that go along with it. Um, you know, when I first joined, one thing I would do is try to relate ZOS concepts back to Linux concepts. You know, that was something I knew, and then I was learning something I didn't know. So it was, it was not always a natural fit, but it, it helped me sort of get through that first month of, wow, this is all brand new, but there's also a rich history here. Yeah, so your, your first major career jump, I think, in your, your full-time, you started working in um, in SMF, and did you use that kind of methodology to try to, you know, map Linux world to, to ZOS when you did that? So once I had sort of established a base of, of ZOS knowledge, uh, I moved over into working on the SMF component, which we'll go into a little more detail to make sure all our listeners understand that. Oh, good, um, good, because obviously... We, we all know what SMF is and what it stands right. for, but, you know, so, some people. Some people who are younger. Might, yeah, right. some younger people might, you know, appreciate. They, they probably hear the term SMF in a lot of meetings that they're in and, and say, what are these guys talking about today? Or, they're always complaining about this SMF data. Yes. <laughs> or I might just nod my head in, in agreeance and say, right. yes, mm, yeah, we, that, that, SMF, we need more of that. Right, yeah, get get the SMF. That's what we need. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so, will, will this scale? <laughs> So, so yeah, my first career move was was to go and and you know do a bunch of work in the the SMF component of the operating system of ZOS and you know the functions that that provides. Just so the listeners have that background, is it's kind of co a common recording platform for the whole operating system. So all of the middleware, all of the operating system components, they all understand how to build these SMF records. And you think of a record kind of like a log entry almost, um, where the first first set of bytes are a standard format, and then whoever's creating that record can then fill in the rest of the record with their own proprietary um, their own proprietary data, but they do map that. So it's, it's uh, consumable to everyone else, but it's generated by that specific component. They write that information to the SMF operating system component, which then manages it, buffers it, writes it out to disk, and then provides uh, the system programmers a way of moving that data someplace where applications can go and, and build reports on it and do analysis of it. And NSMF stands for Seriously Mad Filing, right? Uh, that would be a much cooler acronym. Um, unfortunately, our acronyms tend not to map to something quite that cool. It's uh, the System Management Facilities. That's, so that's pretty cool, though, right? It actually, you know, it probably wasn't cool when they made it, and now it starts to sound. Yeah, that sounds pretty serious. It's a set of facilities. I, anytime there's an acronym with MF in it, <laughs> and it's not what you use it for, it's that's a serious passed up opportunity. But mm -hmm. you know, I think I think mainframe is the only platform where you have things called facilities. That's that's not a fun thing. You hear facilities, that's okay. That's something Where's serious the rest right there. Yep, right. <laughs> So, so you know, for someone who has a, a mostly Linux background or, or Windows or distributed, how how does SMF's capabilities how, how does that differ from like Varlog messages or the stuff that I find out there? So, Windows, Linux, these other platforms have you know what you mentioned a, a log file or or system event files, and they capture some events by the operating system, but they're typically aberrant events, things that are not normal. SMF is always there; it's always collecting data. 
when things are normal, when things are abnormal. And it gives you that view of the operating system that extends into the application space, down to the hardware space, and lets you really understand the whole system. The SMF data itself, you know, so these individual records that are being cut come in kind of two forms. Someone can cut them based on an event happening. So an event happens, I collect some data relevant to that event, and I write an SMF record. There's also this concept of an SMF interval. So if you're a new person in the mainframe space and you hear people talking about like an RMF interval or just the word interval, typically what that means is it aligns back to this SMF interval. This is a configurable amount of time, usually something like 15 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour, and it's typically synced to the top of an hour. What happens is SMF waits. When that time comes, it goes and sends an alert out to the whole system. Everyone waiting on that interval goes, grabs up all of their counters, puts them in a record, and writes that record on the interval. So what you end up getting is a series of data for that whole, say, 15-minute interval. So if something occurred 100 times in that interval, you'll know it happened 100 times. That's in the SMF record. The next interval, you'll get another count from the start of the previous interval to the end of that interval. So you can build these sort of nice charts and flows of that data without having to have a whole bunch of event-based data being driven, which probably doesn't provide a whole lot of value outside of the interval. So it, it almost sounds like SMF is a social media platform and these subsystems and, and everything is kind of like uh, teenagers just posting, everything's great, look at this thing that's going on. Pretty much the database system ate this for breakfast, the yeah. uh, the operating system <laughs> just went for a walk. Um, isn't, isn't this a beautiful sandwich? Yeah. <laughs> Hashtag WebSphere. <laughs> so uh, I was, you, you said that these are typically synced to the top of the hour, be every 15 minutes. Isn't there uh, an inherent danger in having everything pop at once and trying to write everything at once? Wouldn't that create you know unnecessary or kind of spikes in a... Uh, in usage. Oh, that's a good point. And, you know, we, we address that by, you know, we have a lot of capacity in the system and there's not usually a whole lot of things actually popping on these, you know, top of these intervals. Um, we'll go and collect job statistics, but a lot of this is really just moving a counter from one piece of memory into another piece of memory that, that builds up this record. So these things are pretty, pretty quick in order to get them. You're not ten, you don't tend to do a lot of heavy lifting in order to build these interval records. Okay. And that's important, right? Because, you know, you, you want something that's going to save the data and write it asynchronously because it'd be horrible for that stuff to just disappear. You know, like if you were recording something and then it just suddenly disappeared. Like a podcast. Like a podcast. <laughs> I, we just have to imagine what that would be like. Because it would never actually happen on never, this show. It would never, ever happen. It'd be great to pull the SMF data of you actually recording this podcast to see if it ever happened. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get right on that. But, <laughs> but to Frank's point, um, having, having this interval concept does really help drive down that cost because if you wanted to record a bit of data about every transaction that as it happened, you know, that's going to get pretty burdensome if you have you know, hundreds of thousands of transactions happening in an interval where if you're just incrementing a counter or you're you're increment you know you're adding some value out of that field or keeping a running average you know those are really fast math operations you could do those in registers on the CPU and they don't take a whole lot of time so is, are, are these recorded uh, to memory or to disk or a combination of or how, how does that work so a bit of a history lesson for everyone listening so the the SMF component originally would it always buffers its data into memory first and after that point the original method was to write out to a set of data sets that were defined to SMF. They're typically known as the MAN-X data sets. And you can have two, you can have eight of them. As they fill up, we move to the next one, start putting data in there. And what happens is we 
will again fire off an event to the system and typically system automation will then come in and run a program to dump and clear that data set. So if you hear the concept of an SMF dump, that's pulling the data out of SMF's managed data sets and putting it into a secondary data set. Still, still makes me giggle. It, yeah, I know. It's uh, <laughs> Jeff hasn't grown up a whole lot from college. <laughs> so the newer method that we provide is what's called using an SMF log stream. So a log stream is, think of a, an append sort of an append-only structure that's managed by an operating system component known as uh, the ZOS logger, system logger component. And what that does is it will manage all the data, it will manage the data sets, and it'll even let you write into a coupling facility structure uh, if you're sharing this across a sysplex. Yeah, and we're going to have to talk about sysplexes and, and coupling facilities yeah. in a later podcast. It's, it's one of those things that really doesn't have a parallel in any other operating system. So it's it's uh, it's tough to explain uh, without knowing the uses for it. Yeah, so that's another whole oh another yeah whole session. That'll Whoa. be like an eight part episode, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go on, Anthony. So, but once you get the data into a log stream, it ends up being very similar operationally to getting the data back out. You again do uh, an SMF dump process to pull the data out of a log stream into a data set, and then it's the same looking data as if you had done the the Manx recording. Um, but this this data, if you were just trying to open it in a in a text editor, you wouldn't be able to. It's it's probably highly optimized and stuff. It it's, is it's not um, not text based, so it's all binary. So yeah, if you tried to look at it in a text editor, it would look like junk, and you could go look at it in a hex editor and start to make sense of it. We do document all of the SMF record formats that come out in the system. So if you were to go look at the documentation, you can kind of count off you know what byte has what fields in it. So, so the, the the various formats of these SMF records. I assume IBM has probably you know, a certain number, and then if I'm a third party vendor that wants to uh, write out SMF records, I have to do I call up IBM and say, "Hey, is is this number taken yet?" Or how does that work? So, that's a great point. So, the the SMF records themselves, I mentioned, every, everyone's kind of writing these things. So, each record has a record number, so a type, and then a subtype associated with it. There's only 256 types of SMF records, 0 through 255. And IBM has ownership from 0 to 127, and then um, third parties can have access to the higher-level ones. So IBM actually only manages that lower half. The higher half is up for grabs, although most of them have been claimed, you know, are, are very well-known use-wise um, in the industry at this point. But so there's nothing stopping an ISV from writing SMF records, and there's nothing stopping an application programmer from taking advantage of sort of this free infrastructure that the ZOS operating system is providing. But as a as an application programmer, then I could put all this stuff in and just flood the system with more and more messages? You'd probably be flooding a log someplace anyway with more and more messages. What's nice is when you go to SMFs in uh, log stream mode, you can start to segregate your data at the point of origination. So with the Manx mode, everything flows to the one data set, and there's no way to separate it until post-processing. With log streams, we could segregate it at the point of the right. So we can say, okay, application, you know, Frank's SMF type, you're going over to that one log stream. So you're not going to screw up everyone else. If you flood that out and you fill up that log, log environment, um, that's your problem. So you can create that segregation up front, but you also get a lot of benefits from an application if you were to do that. We've put a lot of support under the covers in SMF to provide things like compression, provide digital signatures, provide real-time access to the data. So you have a lot of 
infrastructure that you could take advantage of if you start leveraging SMF. So you said uh, compression and, and signatures. Those are typically things that slow everything down. Isn't that going to be an issue? So it's, it's great that we're on the Z platform um, because it's not an issue for us. So we've got industry-leading technology in both compression and uh, encryption. So for the compression side, we have a PCIe card known as ZEDC Express, and that card provides high-throughput compression that SMF can leverage. And then on the digital signature side, we actually have a bunch of patented technology that help us minimize the amount of encryption operations that we have to do to build those digital signatures. And when we do build them, we're leveraging a coprocessor that's actually right on the ZCPU chip um, that provides high-speed uh, cryptographic hashing. And can you talk about maybe some of the – what would be the benefit of, of cryptographically verifying these SMF records? So the SMF records, the, the data flow for them tends to be I write it and then I have to save it for a very long period of time, years, tens of years, forever. And these records will get written out to disk. They'll get migrated to tape. And then maybe at some point in the future, uh, you'll be asked to go and prove that something happened. And you'll go find the, the tape or the disk where that SMF record is, and you'll go pull it out and display it. You don't know if anything happened to that record. You don't know if at some point in the process someone modified it, someone deleted it, someone added a new SMF record. By generating those cryptographic signatures at the point of creation, then you can verify that the data wasn't tampered with at any point. You're not preventing it from being tampered with, but you can detect that it was not tampered with. Okay, and that's that's fairly unique to this platform too. Yes, uh, a, a signature-based log it, that's available to just the whole operating system is, is a pretty cool feature. And it starts looking at the system as not just a technical thing, but since since it's really focused on business, it's a really cool auditing tool. Absolutely. What kind of utilities would somebody use to look at an SMF record? Uh, I'm assuming, is, is it mostly just the volume that you're looking at, or is there something, uh, what, what do you use to look at these? So, I mean, me personally, I've got some of my own little formatters and tools I use. Um, there's a lot of um, ISV, so independent software vendors, third parties that write software for the mainframe that provides really nice formatting tools for the SMF data. And they'll understand all the different types, all the different subtypes, format it out, um, create reports for it. If you look at a product like RMF, uh, which is an IBM product, you know, that has a set of series of SMF records for performance data. And then that provides post-processing reports for the set of records that it understands. So there's a lot of tools out there. Um, you could also go and roll your own at any point. You know, I'm sure in a lot of environments, people have rolled their own, you know, formatters for special purpose kinds of, you know, applications that they've come up with too. Wow. That, uh, that sounds like a, a lot of fun. <laughs> you didn't say that very convincingly, but well, it's because I was lying. But, but once you, you know, it's one of those things. Once you sort of get past the the tooling and you can actually start exploring the data, you really have a, such a wealth of information to go start looking at that uh, you can really find some cool stuff that goes on with the system. And when someone deploys an application, what kind of impacts does that have on different aspects of the system? Yeah, I, I know one of the first differences I noticed when I started working on the platform compared with Linux is. It, with, with you know Linux on our you know underneath the desk kind of Intel boxes, if something broke, you turn it off and restart it, and you hope it doesn't happen again. And if it happens three or four more times, then maybe you might look into reinstalling something and starting it again. Um, on the platform, on, on the mainframe platform, when something breaks, people tend to huddle around a terminal 
and drag out books, and they'll agonize for three or four hours about what 36-character command they're going to enter in that's going to slowly fix everything. And I'm assuming, you know, they're, they're probably going through a bunch of SMF records, looking at logs and, and looking at historical data and maybe what somebody did months ago. Mm-hmm. It's it's just a completely different tact in in running things. And it's it's something that took me a while to not get frustrated by, but to appreciate. Right. I Yeah. And, and you know, when that huddle of people is happening and, and they're really figuring out what are they going to do, um, they probably did look at, you know, SMF data or at the ZOS system log, which is our messages log in the system or at Arup, which is um, records different kinds of hardware or software-based error events. So there's a lot of different logging facilities built right into the operating system that, you know, these people will go, they'll look at, and they'll, they'll understand, oh, well, that field is spiking, so something must be driving something else harder, so we can go and either add more channel paths for if it's I.O. or take something away. Um, you know, it's a lot of very difficult decisions that you have to make very quickly in order to make sure that you're not going to make the situation worse. Um, but that you might actually make it better by removing something that's causing a problem. You know, all that data, wouldn't it be cool if you could use all that data somehow to to manage the system better, say, automatically? Wow. Imagine. Mm. So that that's a great segue. Um, it really wasn't, though. No, it, it was. It was an awesome segue. <laughs> I've been sitting here for the last five minutes trying to figure out how to get us there. And that's the best you got? Yeah. So that, that right, was, let's take it, though. That was an acceptable segue. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> so, right, when you have lots of data, um, you start to look at, well, can I start doing things like machine learning on, on this data set? I've got this huge corpus of data. I can do trend analysis and, you know, predict if something's going wrong based on am I getting close to it? So Bill, I, I have to imagine it, it, it's some business level. Somebody's looking at the enormous amount of data that's generated by the platform and saying, why don't we just delete this? Why don't we just black hole this? <laughs> so if you can actually drive value from it, right. You know, to, and, and drive home on the value of the platform, that's, that's an awesome use. Yeah. So if you, you know, there's a lot of efforts going on, um, you know, in, in some of them have been publicized things like the common data provider, is one piece of software that uh, IBM recently released that helps to get SMF data into other open kinds of log analysis platforms. Um, so it, it does process it a little bit on the platform and then then move it off into other spaces. So you can start to get some of that additional value without having to necessarily have, you know, your your set of Rex execs that you have on the platform processing this data sort of only as needed. You kind of get that constant flow of information always happening. And that takes advantage of some of the SMF real-time stuff that I talked about earlier, where, you know, normally your SMF data might not actually be available for analysis for a few hours after it's written. So we added some new APIs into SMF that will actually read the data directly out of that buffer and give it to a program that can then make use of it within, you know, less than a second of the data being available to the system. Wow. And once you have stuff available at the uh, API and software level, then you can bring in just about anything, the, the cognitive tools and Spark. and Exactly. It really opens up the whole ecosystem of ways to process SMF data, which is really exciting because we've been doing things kind of the same way for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like over the course of the last year or so and, and moving forward, we're going to start to see some fundamental shifts in the way that we use this data. So it's going to be, it's going to be a neat space. So when you, when you have uh, when you're working with somebody who's kind of new to the the company or the platform, do you how do you balance the the blend of new stuff with old stuff? Because I, sometimes it's kind of like, well, in order to understand this thing, I have to explain 50 years of uh, of things that came before it. So how do you, how do you start fresh without uh, without boring somebody? So I, I 
tend to have a lot of newer people that, that I work with, and I always try to sort of pigeonhole their projects in a way where they can get a little bit deep into one specific area, but they don't have to understand all the nuts and bolts of the whole system. So being able to have them do a project where they can write some code, put it into the operating system, run a test and see that they actually adjusted the operating system's behavior without having to, well, you have to go and activate an IODF and do all these other mm -hmm. acronym soup of things that I'm going to tell you. Um, you know, that would be overwhelming and it would be a month-long project for them to get done. If I can give them something where they can start accomplishing things in like week or two-week intervals, I find that drives a lot of excitement and it makes it feel like any other platform. You know, if you're on Linux, you expect things to happen relatively quickly. Um, you know, there's no reason that Z can't do the same thing. It's just about finding the project, scoping them correctly. And then once they complete the project, then pushing them to a slightly larger project and building that history over time. And eventually you'll tell them, this is your ID you have to configure. Right. Eventually I'll, I'll throw them in and say, okay, start adding devices and dynamic activate them in. And that's, that's a topic for a whole nother podcast. <laughs> that might be another eight part in series. Yeah. <laughs> that's what we need uh, Jay on for. There you go. Yeah. So, um, you have five minutes to talk to somebody who's uh, new at a company, not your company, but at, at a company, mm -hmm. and they're, they're telling you, gee, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm working on this mainframe thing. What would be your advice to them? I think you know, my advice to anyone new on the platform is to learn as much as you can from the people who have been on the platform for a while. There is a lot of deep, rich history there. And a lot of decisions that have been made over, over time, and it's good to understand those so you don't try to recreate or fall into this sort of a similar trap that someone else has hit. Um, but also to look forward. How can you take technology that you're familiar with in Linux or things that you're, um, you know, methodologies that you use in the cloud and then pull them back and use them on Z? There's no reason that we have to always do things the same way because they've been done that way for 10, 20, 30 years. You know, there's, there's no harm in bringing uh, a fresh, fresh set of eyes onto things. Thank you so much for stopping by. Uh, I know I learned a lot. I mean, somebody who doesn't know a lot of stuff might, <laughs> might have learned a lot. <laughs> no, I appreciate being here. Great. Uh, thanks a lot, Anthony. Do we have anything else to talk about? Uh, I think we have a Tales from the Road. Ooh, Tales from the Road. Tales from the Road. And uh, this week's Tales from the Road comes to you courtesy of a four-hour drive out to Pennsylvania. In the worst possible car worst. that you could have. Yeah. Uh, Frank and I travel a lot for, uh, for, for customer visits. And uh, if, you, if you do the same, you know, you know that feeling when they start rummaging through the drawer for keys. And you're like, you're like no, please, please give me one that actually doesn't have a, an actual key on it. Please, please, please. And they, they grab the one that has that big plastic number one, you know, keychain on it. It, it always amuses me. They, they spent – obviously, I would imagine that the number one plastic keychain costs more than the plain blank one. But it's like, why spend the money on that, you know? Well, because they want you to not be looking at the fact that you're driving a car right. that barely has an engine in it. <laughs> it, is, it is the least amount of material you can put together in one place and still legally call an automobile. Like it's got wheels. It's got a steering device. And uh, it's uh, for some reason it has Bluetooth, but it's it's that weird kind of Bluetooth that only works by shouting at you, <laughs> and and it doesn't actually play music on the Bluetooth. No. It just does the phone part. It, 
<laughs> because <laughs> actually playing MP3s through that would be way too hard. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm like calling a friend, like, hey, could you put the phone next to a stereo or something like that? We want to, we want to have some tunes. Well, and that probably wouldn't be bad with somebody that you don't know, mm-hmm. so that you could, you know, have a conversation, get to know somebody over the course of four hours. But if it's somebody that you've been traveling with steadily for two mm-hmm. years, yep. It really is bullet to the brain time. <laughs> wow, yeah, and and the, the the car is just offensively boring. It's it it just it never goes away. It's 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 like listening to a a, a song by by the band Train. Like you know, like the, the first time you hear it, you're like, okay, this is a cool song. You know, the guy's got a good voice and the guitar's pretty tasty. They're they're singing in a key, and you know, it's got a good groove to it. And then the second time you hear it, you're like, okay, yeah, I, I know this song. It's It's got the thing, and then it goes into the chorus. All right, yep, I, I got it. And then, like, the fifth, sixth, seventh, twentieth time you hear it, your hand just, like, instinctively reaches out and just smashes off the radio because you just – you don't want to hear it. You want to have nothing to do with it anymore. That's how I feel when I walk out of a, out into the parking lot and I see that beige thing just sitting there. It sh- we shouldn't even be allowed in a parking lot. But but anyway, uh, this isn't this isn't soapbox corner. That's <laughs> that's another segment. Believe me, we recorded a whole bunch of bumpers. Um, but I wanted to talk about you know I wanted to talk about this this four hour well actually eight hour drive four hours each way four hours each way four times two is eight um, this this eight hour drive because we we started listening to podcasts because we basically we ran out of music. Um, and we listened to the the S Town podcast. We listened to some uh, some other ones, and we got to thinking. You know what? We should record a podcast. We're we're fun guys, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so we started thinking about guests and topics and how we'd put things together and how we'd fit it into our busy schedule and where we'd put the mixing board in the room. And really, the topics and some of the people it really started to come together, and we actually got jazzed about it. And, and imagine how hard it is to become jazzed in the kind of environment that we're talking about. So it was a really cool thing for us to, to start working through, and it really brought us to this point. Yeah, it was a restrained happiness. But it, at the same time, I was just thinking, and you, you know the saying is, be the person you wish existed when you needed the help. And uh, I just I think back to how many times I had a question about the mainframe, and I was either I felt too stupid to ask it or things were just too busy uh, blowing up, and it wasn't a good time to ask about it. And there's a lot of this is recursive knowledge. In order to understand uh, ABC, you need to understand XYZ, and there's not always time for that. And fortunately, we, we know enough people who are more than happy to come in and, and talk to us about that. Well, and often, uh, at least my experience has been when you ask a question about somebody, they feel the need to do the history from the time that electricity was invented. And really, that's not always necessary. I mean, sometimes it's good to understand the context. But what we wanted to do was kind of boil things down and make those dots connectable without having to hear, you know, how we toggle learned. switches. Yeah, toggle switches. Or, you know, uh, magnetic core memory. Or actually, when when when, uh, when Charlie first got started in computers, I believe he they would put on masks and do a dance in an attempt to scare the electrons into certain areas of the computer. That's, that's how old uh, yeah. Charlie, our announcer, is. Yes, and, and he, uh, he's very fast on the abacus, though. I mean, yeah. he knows how to move those beads. <laughs> those things slide back and forth like lightning. Like lightning. 
All right, and I guess that was our first Tales from the Road. You've been listening to Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. For questions or comments, or if you have a topic you'd like to see covered on a future episode, direct all correspondence to contact at terminaltalk.net. That's contact at terminaltalk.net. Until the next time, I'm Charlie Lawrence signing off.